to Matthew's Gospel. It's on page 972, if you've got one of the reddish-brown pew Bibles. We'll resume our time just working through this narrative uh, written by Matthew. And we're at chapter 8, verse 14. Matthew 8, verse 14. If you're new to church, Christianity, uh, in the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. So when I say chapter 8, that's big number 8. And then the small number 14 is where we'll start just now. So let's read this together. It will be on the screen if you want to follow along there. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now Peter has obviously done all right for himself. He's found himself a wife, a job. And his fishing business has obviously been lucrative enough for him to buy a house, and a house that is big enough to home his mother-in-law. Whether or not he's done well for himself in that regard is for yourself to debate. But I wonder what you think was going through Jesus' mind when he approached Peter's house. I wonder what he was hoping for. If you scan the preceding narrative... It's been a pretty hectic day for Jesus. So chapters 5 to 7, he's preached the most sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Standing here, it's quite obvious that listening to sermons are quite exhaustive uh, from some of your expressions. But from this point of view, uh, it's an exhausting experience to preach. And so Jesus has just expended all of this energy preaching And he then walks down a hill at the end of verse 7. But he's not allowed just to retreat into his vestry. Instead, immediately he is confronted with a leper. And following that episode, immediately he is collared by a centurion whose servant is in terrible suffering. Now, any of you who have visited someone who is sick or cared for someone who is in hospital will know how, to some degree, you bear some of their burden. It's an exhausting thing to engage with. A privilege, but it expends both physical and emotional energy. And when Jesus is with an individual, he's all in. It's all of his attention and all of his energy, all of his emotion is in this one person. He is the Son of God, the omnipotent, all-powerful one, but he has taken on our humanity, and so he having preached an exhaustive sermon and engaged in these exhausting conversations, no doubt, just wants to get to Peter's house, put his feet up, have a hobnob and a cup of tea, and sit down. He is not like the... You know in Shrek, there's a fairy godmother who flies around singing Ricky Martin songs, just healing people and potions going everywhere and dancing around. That is not the picture we get of Jesus in the Gospels. Later on in verse 17, we'll see there is a a taking upon himself, a a burden bearing with every person he engages with. And so he approaches Peter's house maybe with 
the expectation that he might be looked after. Maybe he'll get a rest. But as we see, verse 14, he came, and just as he's sitting down, he notices another need. There is a relentless need in front of Jesus. His mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, in bed with a fever. To us, we see fever as a symptom, but in those days, it was a disease, possibly malarial. We see it as something quite common, but for them, it was a common killer. And so this is no trivial malady. The need is relentless. And yet, do you notice that the compassion of Jesus is just as relentless? It's a wonderful thing when you read this. He comes maybe expecting to sit down, but when his heart is moved to compassion with the need that meets his eyes... Again, he rises. He moves towards suffering. He's not nine to five. He's not clocked off. But again, he goes. There's not one from which he turns away. Do you see the king's relentless compassion? And so in verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. Some of us will have sat at a hospital bed holding the hand of someone we love. Just longing that there was something more that we could do. You've been there? My guess is when Jesus arrives, Peter's wife is holding her mum's hand. That's my guess. And so Jesus comes to Peter's wife. He takes her mother's hand from her hands. But with his touch, is not this feeling that if only I could do more. But instead, with his touch, comes an unrivaled power. If you look back at the end of chapter 7, when he's preached this sermon, the crowds are amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. There was something that set him apart from any teacher they'd ever heard. But now his unrivaled authority in word is matched by an unrivaled authority in his date. With a mere touch, he completely heals Peter's mother-in-law. His authority immediately accomplishes everything that he wills. Now, you see what happens next? Peter's mother-in-law immediately got up and began to wait on him. Now, there's a couple of things things that are demonstrated in that. Number one, the power of Jesus' word. She doesn't then need to go into the kind of recuperation process. They don't put her name on the back of the convalescing list on the bulletin. Immediately, she is up and she is serving. Jesus' word is powerful. It immediately achieves everything that it's set out to achieve. But this also demonstrates something else. That in this moment, Peter's mother-in-law begins a life of discipleship. Immediately she begins to serve Jesus. If you look in the the following section of Matthew 8, it's entitled The Cost of Following Jesus. Twice, Jesus says, follow me. That's the language of discipleship. And later on in Matthew, in chapter 20, he will say to his disciples that there is nothing greater than service. That there is no one greater than he who is the servant of all. It's the language of discipleship in Matthew's gospel. And so Jesus himself will describe himself as the son of man who did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Her healing did not release her into this new lease of life where she decided she'd do everything that she wanted to do. But instead, this new lease of life released her into doing whatever her king wanted her to do. Isn't it sad that sometimes it takes a risk to our health to wake us up to how we often take our health for granted? Some of us in this room may have had that kind of wake-up moment face-to-face with our mortality. Well, when Peter's mother-in-law has that moment where she has a deadly fever, and then, if you like, is handed her life back, what does she do? She doesn't draw up a bucket list and says, this is what I want to do before I die. I want to paraglide, and I want to swim with dolphins, and I want to go to Disney World. I want to do all these things. But she turns to the one who healed her and says, what's your bucket list for me? How can I serve you? A quick question. How are you using your health? Whether it's failing, but you still have some, or whether you're in the prime of your life, are you serving the Lord Jesus given how much he has done for you? But in this episode, do you see the king's unrivaled authority? Merely with a touch, he can heal a deadly disease. Now it's worth us spending a little moment just to think about miracles uh, more specifically. Often in the Bible, especially in John's Gospel, miracles are described not as miracles, but as signs. That is to emphasize the fact that actually they point beyond themselves to something else. That's true throughout the Bible. So when people like Moses in Exodus 4 does miracles, or Elijah in 1 Kings 17, or Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, they serve to point beyond themselves to something else. In those instances, to verify that they are God's messengers and are therefore worthy of listening to. So when you see Moses do a miracle, it is God's way of saying, listen to this guy. He's from me. He speaks my words. They're a sign. Now so too in Jesus' ministry, miracles are signs. Not just to point to the fact that Jesus is someone from God, but that he is God. As you see this king's authority to heal, God is saying, this is me. Listen to me. Watch me. Matthew is trying to provoke us to say, who is this guy? And the answer comes back, he is God's himself. Matthew records this incident, not so that you would marvel at Peter's mother-in-law's health, but that you would marvel at Peter's mother-in-law's healer and ask, who is this? It's worth just also saying how miracles relate to God's providence. We don't believe that miracles is just God interfering in a world that he is otherwise absent from. We don't believe in deism, where God kind of wound the world up, started it off, and then steps back and lets it run its own course. God's providence is his all-the-time, all-things-control of his creation. That is always going on. His miracles are just a more unusual type of his activity to be a sign to provoke awe. Let's try and give you an illustration to help this. This may not help. 
We have a bunch of guys in our church, mainly young guys, who like to do what they call lift. Now, lifting is basically kind of weights for the sake of getting buff. I won't name them because they'll be embarrassed. But these guys, so they go, they lift and they build their muscles. Now their muscles are always there. They're always working. And whatever they do, their muscles, so whether they're cleaning their teeth or writing a postcard or getting on a bus, their muscles are involved. When, what they often do, maybe at the gym, maybe just at home in front of the mirror, they flex. What are they doing? They are putting on display the muscles that were already there, but they are revealing them. Why? So that other people, or maybe just themselves, find themselves in awe. Now, God's providence is like their muscles. Constantly engaged in everything that they do. When Jesus performs a miracle, he's flexing. To put his glory on display. To provoke awe. That you would say, who is this? So, the king's relentless compassion, his unrivaled authority. Well, let's read verse 16. When evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Now mention that it's turned evening. Again, just repeats the uh, unrivaled pace and relentlessness of Jesus' ministry. In Mark's account of this story, he reveals that it was a Sabbath. It was a day of rest. But notice, Jesus hasn't been using this day of rest as a way of self-serving idleness, but for serving the good of others. That's a model for us. It's not for the sake of idleness, but to serve the good of others. But evening as evening comes, he does not get to put his feet up and have a hobnob and a cup of tea. Instead, more people come. The truth is, when it was during the day and the Sabbath, carrying a sick person to Jesus would have been considered work. And so as soon as the sun goes down, Jesus is in even more demand. And you see this, many come, all were healed. That word all is comprehensive. That is to say there was no disease which his unrivaled power could not overcome. He reigns as king over all that would destroy or deform. And do you notice how he does it in verse 16? With a word. Just as his touch was unrivaled in its power, so too his word is powerful. And unlike other magicians in the day, he did not need to summon up a power from out with himself, but his power is just internal, innate. It is who he is as God. With a word, many came, but all were healed. Can you imagine Capernaum that night? Imagine what it would, the buzz that would have been around there. As all of a sudden the whole town comes out to this one man. Many come all healed. Can you imagine the buzz in the city? Imagine if that was Edinburgh. Imagine you worked in the hospital. All of a sudden ambulances start adjusting their sat navs. Instead of going to the royal infirmary, they come to this royal king. For the first time ever, A&E has been empty. All those people have been there four hours. Say, hang on. Let's go there. My guess is, I kind of hope, 
The surgeons with nothing to do would play operation <laughs> on the operating theatre. The nurses would race the doctors on the beds down the corridor. Can you imagine Capernaum on that night? Nothing for the doctors or the nurses or the surgeons to do. It becomes a little outpost of God's eternal kingdom. Just on that one night, it experiences this little haven of health. Many come, all were healed. Now here we come back to this idea that miracles are signs. They've been assigned to authenticate God's messengers, but here they are a foretaste of what is to come. Capernaum becomes a little foretaste of God's new creation. Do you see here the king's restored kingdom? Tim Keller, an author and a pastor, helpfully writes, We tend to think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of natural order. Do you see that? We think it's an unusual thing. It's an unnatural thing. But all Jesus is doing is restoring order from chaos. Health from suffering. He is doing exactly what God has promised he would do. In this world's Sickness and health were un, unhealth were not in the original, and they will not be in the final. They are an alien intruder. They are a temporary tenant. They will not be here forever. And so Jesus gives Capernaum a little foretaste of what the new creation is going to be like. Do you see the king's restored kingdom? He brings a holistic restoration. Now, as I read this. There's a question that immediately comes to mind. If he healed them, and if he healed then, and if he healed Peter's mother-in-law, why doesn't he heal us? Why doesn't he heal my sister, my son, my mother-in-law, my grandparents? If you're a Christian... The promise of this passage is that physical healing is not a question of if. It is a question of when. It is not a question of whether God will heal or not. He will. It's a question whether he will do it in this creation or for the next. He is the compassionate king who brings a restored kingdom. His resurrection assures our resurrection. The new creation will be the restoration of all that is broken. Why doesn't he heal now? We don't know. He could. He can. He does. He may do it now, and we can pray for that. He may use his providence through ordinary means. He may use miracle through unusual means. But it is not a question of if, but when. But if you trust in Christ and see in his resurrection the complete healing of his physical body, then we too can trust that we will receive 
are brand new, perfect, incorruptible, imperishable resurrection body. Now it's important that we now continue to verse 17 to see how Matthew adds an editorial comment to aid our understanding of this. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Both Matthew through Isaiah says, okay, first of all, you've got to look back. You've got to look back several hundred years to see that what is happening here is what was promised back then. He says, who you see and what you see is the fulfillment of an ancient promise where God says the reign of his Messiah King will be one of physical well-being. Matthew, so far in his gospel, has been meticulous and comprehensive in ticking off this ancient to-do list. That when the Messiah comes, he will be this, he will be from there, he will do this, he will fulfill this. And so here in these miracles, Matthew sees part of the promised fulfillment that comes in God's King, the Lord Jesus. And do you see the shape of his ministry? He takes up infirmities. He carries diseases. His ministry is one of servanthood. His authority is to use to take up and to carry. Isn't that refreshing? Often we see people with phenomenal power using it for their own self-indulgence. Isn't it refreshing to see one with all the power of God to use it to carry the burdens of another? If you look down in chapter 8, you see that Jesus himself, in verse 20, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't even use his power to find himself a bed. Instead, he is constantly serving others. It's interesting, the only place he can find to lay his head in Matthew's gospel is in a boat in the middle of a storm. See how exhausted he was? Constantly serving the needs of others. But as we look back with Matthew and Isaiah, they both provoke us also to look forward to the promise's fulfillment. So come with me to Isaiah chapter 53. We read this earlier, but come with me in your Bibles. Isaiah 53, verse 4, verse 740, page 740. As we look back to the the promise that was made, Isaiah and Matthew say, you've also got to look forward to something that is in Jesus' Future. So Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We're taken from the healings of Jesus to the sufferings of of Jesus, from his miracles to his cross. And what we see is that the healing miracles of Jesus anticipate the cross as they begin to roll back the effects of sin for which Jesus 
will go to die. Now, the Bible does not say that all disease is a direct result of sin, although some may be. But the Bible does say that all disease is indirectly a result of sin. That we live in the consequences of a fallen creation that has rebelled against God. And so disease and infirmity are one of the consequences of sin. Now in his healing miracles, he begins to counter the consequences of sin. Matthew says, look forward to the cross where he confronts not the consequences of sin, but sin itself. In the healing miracles, he deals with the consequences, but on the cross, he confronts sin itself. His cross is the foundation of any healing, and his resurrection is the first fruits of any healing. So that healings find their foundation in the cross and are a fruit of the resurrection. The shape of the miracles are the shape of his cross. He takes up. He carries. You see the language of Isaiah 53? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. In the same way that he took on the disease of uh, all these people who came to Capernaum, that is a sign of what he is going to do on his cross, where he takes on himself the sins of his people. He dies for my sin. He is punished for my transgression. He is wounded that I might be healed. Do you see the king's sin-bearing cross? Jesus came for holistic Restoration, but at the center of our whole is our soul, where we need our sin carried by the sin-bearing Savior. It is true to say that Jesus cared much about suffering, but especially about eternal suffering. He cared much about people's physical illnesses, but he cared even more about their sinfulness. And so as we see his healing miracles, Matthew and Isaiah say, look beyond that to his sin-bearing cross. We would be foolish just to seek physical healing and not to come to that which they find their foundation in and are the fruit of. You imagine someone going to an electric chair and asking for a paracetamol. Well, so too the person who comes to Jesus only for the sake of being healed physically, but not to have their sins borne on his cross. We care much about physical suffering, but we care even more about eternal suffering. See, let me speak to you. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. I wonder what you make of this account of some of Jesus' miracles. Matthew, the writer, is actually seeking to persuade you. He's writing this for you. And it's interesting that he's very particular about details. So he says, who is healed? It's Peter's mother-in-law. Now, if you were in the first century, Peter would have been a very prominent figure in the church. 
you could probably go and find the family and say, did this, did this really happen? You could go and ask the questions. If Peter was making something up, he probably would have said, this random person that we didn't know the name of got healed and it was amazing. But instead he names them. You know that prominent person in the church? It's his mother-in-law. You can go and find them. Ask the questions. So too he names the town. He doesn't create a mythical town where you could never go and ask the questions. But he says, no, this really happened in Capernaum. You could go there. You could ask, was Jesus here? We're all healed. The details actually are there to persuade you that this is not mythical, but reality. But I wonder this morning how you would answer the question, who is Jesus? When you see these miracles and see these signs, do you see that you're, they're pointing you that he is not just an ordinary man, but in fact he is God's king? I wonder what you would see as your greatest need this morning. Maybe you have many. Maybe you think you're doing all right. But sufferings in this world are one of the means that God uses to wake us up and say, okay, there is much physical suffering in this world. But actually you have a deeper need. A need that your sin would be borne by Jesus on his cross rather than you bearing it and the consequences for eternity. There was a paralytic who came to Jesus. The presenting issue was his paralysis. But his primary issue was his sin. This morning you could come and you could say, Jesus, I have many struggles, but I also have many sins. And I need you to be my sin-bearing king. Maybe you could be like Peter's mother-in-law this morning. Today is the day when you know your sin's forgiven and you begin serving him. Saying, Jesus, I don't want to live life for my bucket list, but I want to do anything that you would have me do. Let's pray together.